All right, Pat, season four, episode three, entitled Breaker of Chains. Man, these third episodes, they are just getting more and more jam-packed as we, as we make our way down the line. Yeah, Dom, I think the Talking TV family probably agrees. Uh, this is Breaker of Minds, right, with these third episodes? <laughs> For real. Like, uh, For real. A lot happened. Uh, amazing way to uh, follow up the Joffrey wedding, and it, it is definitely a wild ride. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. All of that and more on tonight's episode of Talking Thrones. Oh, man, we have another doozy of an episode. I, I don't really know when it was that Benioff and Weiss adopted this strategy of kind of splitting up the majority of the action, you know, as far as the setup for the characters between the first two episodes and then kind of really seeing, like, you know, kind of the whatever the next stage is after, like, the initial setup. I forgot what, like, that exact point on, like, the writing structure is. They have pretty much to have that in their third episode. But for whatever reason, they feel the need to jam-pack all the storylines into one. It's really strange. Like, I, I don't know. What, what are really your thoughts on that as somebody who has, like, actually written for film and television before, Pat? Um, You know, hey, listen, I, I think for the TV show, it's a matter of, like, shock and awe like very uh big shocking event happened at the end of the last episode which was joffrey uh you know basically dying in uh jamie and cersei's arms like choking on poison and you know how do you follow that up well you know it's sort of like that movie halloween 2 like the original and how i was about to say i'm like which one Well, I think they, you know, every time they do a Halloween 2, they try to uh, do the same thing, which is continue the story, right? You know, the, the latest ones, I think, did that. Well, at the very and least, the latest. Rob at Zombie the very least, had an homage to that. So. Right. Well, well, it, it's the most confusing thing because at the very least for the latest Halloween movie, right, they had they, they actually, like, give it a subtitles or almost. So it's not just another Halloween 2. It's Halloween Kills, you know? It's ironic because the first one of those is already confusing enough with the, with the comparison to the original name. But, yeah, it's so confusing because you have the original 1981 Halloween to and then i literally have to call the 2009 halloween to rob zombies halloween to in order to justify <laughs> yeah. those well they're just gonna like keep rebooting these you know yeah, i think uh if david lynch is still alive in like 10 years he'll be able to reboot the series david himself, Lynch's but, uh, halloween i would watch yeah i, I would, he I would love that because you, you know why because david lynch would actually like delve into like the weird surrealist thing and like he'd make a whole movie like inside of michael myers head it'd be really weird but it'd be really surreal and awesome <laughs> anyway, this is not a Halloween yeah, Michael say, Myers episode. Not a Halloween special. And, and the only reason why I brought it up, Dom, was the fact that this episode takes place right after the events. Yes. Uh, we're in the middle of the action. And I think that gives some credence to uh, the pacing of the episode because, uh, you know, our hearts sort of like dropped last week. And now we got the a little bit of sweat. Uh, goosebumps. We're ready to see what happens and where the story takes us. And I think the pacing of this episode uh, really gets you into that mindset. And I think that's really the the sort of sense of the cliffhanger and doing it this way is that you waited seven days if you were watching this in real time or if you're streaming it now, you're basically like, hey, I'm clicking that button because I got to see what's next. Um, either way, your heart is elevated. You're ready to go. And I, I think there's something with that, uh, you know, don't give them everything 
let them build anticipation uh, that really works with this, uh, you know, episode two to episode three. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 interesting because the way that the episode starts, it's almost like. It, 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 I don't think any other episode has done this exactly to the point where it starts off actually with a with a just a literally a retake as part of the episode of the ending shot of Joffrey. I love the opening shot. It's like right on Joffrey's corpse. It's like just adding that little edge to it. It's like, oh, yeah, just one more shot to show you that guy that you absolutely hate is dead. And then it just plays out the sequence as it happened last episode where it's Cersei yelling at the guards to take Tyrion and all that before it cuts to. Uh, Sansa being taken away by Don is very interesting. I don't think any other episode of the show has started off that way, like from a structure from a structure standpoint. But well, I think it's uh, you know it's also to make it a standalone episode. Like for whatever reason, if you jump into the show in the middle of it, let's say uh, I don't know why you would do this, but season four, episode three was the first episode you saw of this uh, show. Could have just you been basically like in the old like scrolling through cable days. Yeah, you could you could pick right into the action you can understand what's going on like you might be some disorientation but you would basically be able to get the entire scene and understand what's happening uh some sort of killing happened at a wedding uh, and then you would learn who uh to a certain degree joffrey was and, and whatnot throughout this episode like they do refer um to the fact that he's uh not a good king He's sadistic, etc. So, you know, the characters do pepper in some plot points about Joffrey that you would be able to pick up. So, you know, I think replaying the scene, it's sort of a little bit of a tradition in terms of, you know, making sure the audience members, whether you were included in last week's episode or not, uh, you could flip this on the television or, or just you know, walk into a room with your roommates watching it and you can sort of understand everything that's going on. It's a self-contained episode for sure. That's fair. That's actually pretty fair and actually really interesting. And so we cut to this brief opening scene with Sansa and Littlefinger. It's another one. I, I lo- it's another one again, like begins like dovetails with a scene, ends with a scene because there's so much that it has to cover. But I like that we get this little check in with Sansa because this really is the beginning of phase two for Sansa. You know, she's finally been she's finally been able to escape King's Landing, which was originally like this place of, you know, great enlightenment and like futuristic destination for her and now she's wanted nothing more than to get out of it because it has slowly drained away everything and now here's her chance but it's in the hands of Littlefinger and in Littlefinger's hands Sansa is molded into like a completely different figure so like this is again talking about how season four is kind of the beginning of like almost act two for this for these next couple of seasons that we're about to cover for this phase of the show the other thing that I love too is the fact that of, of just how like Joffrey's of Joffrey's wedding, similar to kind of how you saw with Ned Stark's death and Rob Stark's death. But I'll actually make a different comparison rather than those two, because those are two end of season events. Joffrey's death and like kind of all the ripple effects that kind of play out from it reminds me very much more so of actually Renly Baratheon's death all the way back in season two. I think it's ironic because they were also making a ton of references to that in the previous episode. So the, the way that Renly's death, right, and the way how that happens at the beginning of episode five, and then you see the ripple effects of it, like, all across the kingdoms, that's kind of what this episode reminds me of more so rather than uh, any of the other previous events. And I think it's amazingly well demonstrated here. Once Sansa is spirited away into Littlefinger's hands, Littlefinger immediately responds by killing Dantos. It's like, wow. Good on you for actually trusting Littlefinger, but I guess that shows. But as he responds, you know, and kind of and the interesting thing here too is that he doesn't reveal yet to Sansa that he was behind it, even though by this point us book readers knew because that this this was the point that he revealed it in the what's it called in the books. And so, and then of course he has the response of all responses when Sansa asks why he killed Dantos, and he's like, because he's a fool and a drunk, and I don't trust drunken fools. 
Yeah, Tom. Um, so I, I would say like he kind of does reveal it to Sansa in the sense that he uh, tells her about the necklace and that he had it made like three weeks ago. So I, I would say like in his own way, he kind of subtly reveals it. Sansa, who hasn't had the best track record up to this point of putting two and two together, had, you know, it's whether or not she actually understands what he's talking about. But, um, you know, maybe to a certain degree, that's part of her journey now is to uh, get up to speed and really, you know, she's always been behind in terms of the moves that are being played in the Game of Thrones. And this is her chance to sort of, uh, you know, be with Lord Baelish and start to observe uh, sort of his skill. You know, he's very uh, malicious as you, you know, with Dantos and killing him. Um, you know, he, he promised him $10,000, like 10,000 gold uh, to be able to, you know, spirit Sansa onto the ship. And that, you know, I think, you know, for a man that was a knight, who had presumably some uh, money, maybe some, uh, you know, uh, land, et cetera, uh, to be stripped of that and made a drunken fool uh, in Joffrey's court, uh, to have Lord Baelish offer him $10,000 and help him get back on his feet. I think, you know, that's something that he's really desperate to do. Uh, like his fall from grace uh, probably didn't sit well for him. And, you know, you just dangle that carrot in front of him. And, and basically Lord Baelish was able to utilize him as, as much as possible. So uh, I think this whole experience with Sansa, like, you know, uh, she might not know how deep Lord Baelish's uh, role was. Uh, but I think she's going to start to understand, like, you know, how he pl played a long game. And, you know, how, um, you know, she could start thinking a couple moves ahead uh, to her advantage. But uh, that development for Sansa is going to happen over time, over uh, definitely a few seasons. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's I think it's a great way to open the episode and also a great way to kind of signify Sansa's journey about what's going to happen. But let's get to it again, even though it's only still a small fraction of the episode King's Landing. That is where the action, that is where the drama is again this season. You have Joffrey's wake. Man, the other thing that I can say about King's Landing, Tywin is wasting absolutely no time. He's like, okay, one son's dead. I got to start prepping the next one. And he's already got his, his, his almost like his lo the long Lannister claws just wrapped around Tommen's, um, Tommen's shoulder, not even paying attention to the one grandson that's already like just laid out in front of him with those weird rocks over his eyes. I still don't understand why they do that at Westerosi funerals. I, 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 I've completely forgot the custom that goes with that. I'm sure that if I brought in a Game of Thrones fact checker, Eric, that he would be able to point that out to us. But <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure, you know, obviously a lot of this show is taken from real history. So, um, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you could, you know, search uh, that on Google and, and find an answer for yourself, Tom. But uh, I haven't, I don't know myself, but uh, otherwise I, I would let you know. But, uh, you know, it, it is a, definitely a, a burial ritual, uh, you know, or ad adapted uh, ritual. Uh, I, I think this scene's amazing in terms of, uh, you know, just how, um, you know, Tywin approaches the, the scenario. Like Cersei and Tommen are hanging out over Joffrey's body. Uh, Tommen doesn't really seem to, you know, be distraught. Uh, Cersei's a little more so, obviously, because it's her uh, children and that's what she's living for. But effectively, Tywin is using history and, uh, you know, Tommen's, uh, you know, uh, naive nature uh, to really make his points and, and bring him under uh, his wing. And he's talking about like, you know, hey, what do you think makes a, a good king? And, you know, it's like strength and, uh, ju you know, justice and, and all this stuff. And every time that 
Tommen answers, uh, he brings up a logical argument of why that didn't work. You know, for the guy that's sought justice and reforms, uh, it wasn't really just for him to get murdered by his brother, right? He let that happen. He let the kingdom fall into a dark rulership. Uh, so, you know, the problem with justice uh, was that, you know, he was blinded by, um, you know, basically from that scheme. And so Tywin brings all these things up to direct him towards wisdom and the fact that wisdom comes from listening to your counselors until you're of age. And then, you know, the best kings uh, basically listen to them well beyond, uh, you know, their childhood years. Yes, absolutely. And like the way that he's like subtly coaching Tommen towards the right goal by pointing out all these examples. I will say that like besides being an it shows like Tywin's prowess as a manipulator and the reason why he is the most powerful man of the, in the Seven Kingdoms and has been for the last several years. But also I can't imagine it's like wow, he actually probably would be like a really good teacher just in general. He like, I just imagine like Charles Dance as Tywin Lannister teaching a class of like a bunch of like college students today within the metaverse. I'm like wow, he might actually produce like some pretty efficient college grads. That's right there. But yeah, well, maybe that's it. Maybe the future of uh, <laughs> education is like in some sort of uh, virtual reality where I could be teaching my video editing class as Tywin. Uh, wow. Hey, that's <laughs> you know, an idea right be, there. Uh, that would be really uh, bizarre. But, uh, yeah. you know, hey, you know, anything's possible. The technology is out there. It's just a matter of will you put the uh, effort yeah. in uh, and, you know, investment of money. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, that might be actually a good short story or, or short film idea if anyone wants to uh, take that. But, uh, yeah, Tywin is the master manipulator. Um, you know, it's just amazing. Um, and he's not wrong. I think that's where it, it, this all comes from. It comes from truth. You know, yes, he's manipulating him and he's he's going to try to make Tom Tom and do the you moves that he wants. Yeah, I, I almost uh, you, you know, almost up his name. Uh, but anyway, so <laughs> it, it's basically you know Tywin. He he understands how people's minds work, and he's leading him to the conclusion, and he's going to make it seem like Tommen. Um, you know, is making his own decisions. And, you know, that's going to be how he manipulates and lays the foundation for his family uh, going forward beyond the events of this tale. Um, Tywin totally expects to live, uh, you know, probably what, like another 30 years, giving, uh, you know, his uh, grandson advice. And the fact is we, you know, have people that have seen the show understand that that doesn't happen. Uh, but the fact is he's playing the long game. He's setting Tommen up to listen to him as long as he's alive. And also, you know, if, if you do have a couple decades with your grandfather teaching these things, uh, those things are going to be ingrained in how you decide to do things in the future. So, you know, he's basically definitely, like you said, uh, trying to educate the boy in, you know, his design, uh, the way he thinks things should be uh, and influence really the, the way that the Lannisters rule uh, from, you know, hopefully for generations uh, from Tywin's point of view. Right, of course. And now the next scene that we have here is an interesting one because it was kind of the first of a couple of controversial sex scenes that happened on Game of Thrones. Like, of course, Game of Thrones has been criticized for minute one by like the lesser ones crowd about being too violent and too sexually explicit. But this is the point where we started to get into like the uncomfortable areas, let's say, of, of, of we, we kind of within that sphere in the sense of where what happens afterwards is 
uh, when Cersei and Jamie are foolishly left alone. This seems to happen a lot in the set, just Jamie and Cersei being left alone just at random points, not even just like, you know, when they accidentally wander into their chambers or whatever at night. But basically, Cersei asks, begs Jamie to just kill Tyrion, just, you know, just get it out of the way. You know, he's been, he's been a menace to our family since minute one, and this is finally our chance to get rid of him. And Jamie refuses because he understands that there's no way, because he actually, you know, knows Tyrion and understands there's no way that Tyrion actually would do this. And what follows is something that's very strange where it's a scene that I think was expl- – I, I, I don't know for sure whether it was explicitly changed from its presentation in the books or whether – as far as our interpretation of it goes or whether it, it was intentionally you know, reshaped to be something that was not, which is weird. The reason is that in the books, because this is played out from Jamie's perspective, we're perceived to see the next – the sex scene that follows, which it's already strange that they're having sex next to their son's corpse, but whatever. It's Westeros. It's, it's medieval times. Well, also, yes, it's very awkward that uh, this is the moment that Jamie chooses to, to uh, take action, you know, in, in regards to their secret – um, you know, incest relationship that probably shouldn't be public. And the fact that it's in the sept, you know, even though they told, you know, everybody to leave them alone and let them have the room, you know, I know it's not like uh, 2022, there's no video cameras anywhere, but, you know, the fact is there's got to be people that are hanging out in the, the hallways and whatnot that can easily peep into this giant chamber room and see what's going on. So for, you know, the way we're looking at this scene, one, it's just a weird spot to confront uh, Cersei in general, uh, just because there's already rumors. Uh, but now you're you're basically just now they're, just, they're just doing it out in the open. They're just like we don't exactly. care. So you know, th- I think that you know, it, yes, there's kind of some missing psychology to the, the scene in the show because it's like you know we understand that Cersei has sort of moved on and said like. You know, hey, our relationship is not what it once was. Uh, you took too long getting back to me. Uh, you know, she's sort of, you know, the, the relationship is pretty much ended, um, you know, in, in regards to their intimacy. And, you know, this is the moment where he feels he's been punished. And so he just goes ahead and, um, you know, from my perspective, takes what he wants. And unfortunately, he, you know, she begs to stop and uh, he assaults her right there in the sept. Um, So not only is it, you know, part of their, um, you know, incest relationship that's been going on for, you know, years, uh, you know, there's multiple children involved in this relationship. Um, Now it's, you know, escalating to really this uh, violent area. Um, and it's being done publicly in the sept. And, you know, from my perspective, it's like the implications are like, oh man, you just sort of like, you know, signed your death warrants, you know, <laughs> like, uh, you know, someone's going to hear about this. Someone's going to be able to, uh, you know, put a witness in a stand, um, you know, and, you know, it's going to lead to some, uh, very dangerous game of Thrones action. Uh, now whether or not, you know, that really, uh, is a storyline that's followed. I, I don't really think it, it is. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's it's kind of a weird scene in that regard because you would think it would lead to a lot of, uh, you know, obvious consequences uh, for this 
scene taking place. Yeah, it, it, it's a weird scene to begin with. And the only reason why I think it was intentionally changed is because even though in the book it takes place from Jamie's perspective, when it actually happens, she's full on enjoying it and asking him for more in the books. And I like I can read you a passage and show you exactly what it is that she says. And, it, and, and by all intents and purposes, it is meant to be perceived that it is a mutually consensual act. Versus in the show, the intentionality has changed. And I'm still not quite sure why as far as as far as the decision, especially considering that, okay, so she refused him, but she also initiated the kiss as far as, like, perhaps an attempt to seduce him and get him to do her bidding this way. That's kind of the only reason why I can think, just as far as the, the choice to change it to me is confusing unless it went along with their previously established kind of slight change in narrative but again, this was a section that was that got such small little devotion in the books and was also kind of executed differently in how it was shifted in the books that followed A Storm of Swords. But only yeah, I, 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 th- I think it really only serves to show that their relationship is on the rocks, that they're, I they're guess, not on the same page. Yeah, that, you know, they are they have diverged. You know, they once were, uh, you know, a unit, you know, basically who. Uh, push Bran out the window and they were okay with it. You know, like uh, they were okay with, you know, th- th- I guess siblings that murder together, stay together. I don't, siblings I don't know that what murder the phrase together, is. stay together, die together, have some kids together. But okay. Fa- yeah. But the fact is, you know, they're, they're uh, basically no longer kind of one mind. Um, and this is really the point in the show where that will continue for seasons on end. Uh, Jamie is seen as this sort of like honorable person. Like, you know, that's a shift from the first two seasons. Uh, now he's, you know, for the rest of the series, you know, has some sort of honor. Um, you know, he obviously names his sword Oathkeeper and, uh, you know, interacts with Brienne throughout the rest of the series. You know, he we, they've changed our perception of him. Uh, and that's going to last for the series. And as as time goes on, uh, leading up to Cersei eventually sitting on the uh, throne uh, a couple of seasons from now, uh, you know, she's basically getting more and more hardened, uh, more and more cruel and more and more like her own type of ruler. Um, you know, and, and the fact is, Jamie is not going to be able to sway her uh, in any regards. And. You know, I think this is like basically an early on notion of like, um, you know, Jamie and Cersei just not being able to reconcile with each other. And the fact is, um, the Lannisters are, you know, their families being torn apart uh, just as much um, as the Starks was, you know, in terms of uh, the events of the first couple seasons. And, you know, it's just a um, basically it's mistrust and, and cruelty and violence and this is you know things that are normal for the Lannisters um these are now happening are, to them yeah these things are heightened um and they're doing it to each other because they can't turn off uh you know the basically the scheming you know the, the what has got them to the throne uh they just can't shut it down they're they're paranoid that even each other um is somehow you know screwing themselves over you know over it's now personal ambition um and it's it's kind of a the family tragedy i guess uh going forward for the rest of the show right indeed and i i think it's interesting that you know from one tywin confrontation you know kind of coaxing 
uh, you know, towards something to another. You know, we next have Tywin's confrontation with Oberyn, which, again, like, it just might be one of the best written scenes of the entire series, let alone just this season. Like, he walks in, Oberyn's in the middle of yet another, you know, brothel, like, encounter that seems to just be, like, that. that's, like, his kind of, his base of operations that he's made since coming to King's Landing. And, that like, the, the, like, kind of the... the the cat and mouse back and forth game that's by there. It's like, it's Shakespeare. It's first Shakespeare. I, I think that works out because I just watched the tragedy of Macbeth on Apple TV plus this weekend, which was probably like my first real, like actual thing. I'm like, okay, this is Shakespeare, you know, not, not Baz Luhrmann's bullshit with DiCaprio. You know, I'm like, this is Shakespeare. And like kind of the, you know, that, that cat and mouse back and forth, you know, their intentions through their body language, but they're not actually being spoken in words. You know, uh, Tywin basically kind of, you know, coaxing him towards like, oh, okay, you could have done this. And Oberyn being like, okay, no, you know I didn't do this, but this is where we're going to go with this. And like, it, 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 it's poetry. I don't know, Pat, what, what's your take on it? Hey, uh, listen, I, I think you uh, laying the smack down on Baz Luhrmann uh, might be a little bit oh, of a problem. Oh, no. Uh, you not, know, not, hey, not, listen. Oh, Pat, we got a Baz Luhrmann stand here? Listen, his, his Leonardo DiCaprio and Romeo and Juliet – you know, I, I wasn't necessarily one of the people that loved that particular film, uh, but Baz Luhrmann is uh, amazing. You know, uh, was it Moulin Rouge, uh, The Get Down, which is on Netflix? You know, okay, that's fair. Uh, he's done a lot of things. Like, I think he did Australia, which uh, was, uh, a, yep. a, you know, very uh, visual, beautiful movie. Uh, I, I don't remember anything of the plot. Maybe, maybe it's been way too long since I watched it. Um, but you know, uh, don't throw down the white glove when it comes to Baz Luhrmann because he, he actually is a really good filmmaker. Um, but the fact is in this particular scene, you know, Oberon speaks plainly with Tywin and it's the same thing that he did with, uh, you know, Tyrion when he came by the brothel earlier in the season, you know, he says why he's there and that's to get revenge he tells Tywin, you know, hey, listen, you know, you're responsible for the mountain, you know, and you you basically had something to do with this. And Tywin denies it. He basically says, hey, no, uh, you know, there's history is full of people, you know, under orders who disobey and do cruelty. And that's what happened in this case. And so Oberon responds at face value. OK, well. You know, the fact is I'm going to have to have a conversation with the mountain. And, you know, this means a duel. This means a murder, whatever. Oberon, you know, is smart enough to understand that he can't just go straight at Tywin. Uh, and even says so. And the fact is he has to take Tywin at face value and the fact that his uh, real objective is the mountain. Um, and that's a beautiful setup. That That is... Uh, what's going to take place later in the season is obviously the second trial by combat uh, that Tyrion is involved in, and Oberon is going to be his champion against the mountain. So there's sort of the whole entire season weaving uh, this confrontation, uh, you know, the whole entire time in almost every episode. Um, and I will say that, you know, in this particular scene, Tywin is, is playing politics. You know, he's trying to rig the jury in... Um, you know, his favor. So two of the judges, uh, Pycelle, I believe, and uh, Tywin, they're going to vote. Uh, May, May, yeah, Mace Tyrell. Yeah. Well, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, Mace uh, Tyrell, not Grand Mace. Okay, Tyrell, Tyrell. Um, wow, I just realized that's another one that sounds like almost identical. Yeah. yeah. So uh, anyway, uh, yeah. So basically, um, the Tyrells, which, you know, they want the alliance. 
uh, as much as Tywin wants it. So they're obviously going to vote in the same way, um, you know, to convict Tyrion. Um, and really, that's two against three. So, you know, Oberon's just serving, um, you know, to hopefully be convinced as a outside party uh, and really bring him into the fold. You know, you'll get a seat on the, the small council. You know, you'll be an advisor uh, in this administration, so to speak. Um, so there is a uh, trying to make a, you know, a, a multiple uh, family alliance between uh, the Dorns the Lannisters and the Tyrells. And, you know, this is, you know, maybe a foolish attempt by Tywin, uh, but for the time being, uh, we're left with Oberon uh, staring down Tywin as he offers his hand. Um, and we're going to learn about his decision at a later time, uh, because right now uh, we got to cut to, uh, you know, uh, Tyrion in the prison yes. cell, yeah. um, enjoying his, uh, um, you know, time that he has to think to himself. <laughs> wow. Sounds like so much fun, you know, and you know, they're not giving prisoners any books, anything to do. You know, it's not exactly capital punishment. So he's just sitting in that dungeon cell with time to himself. He yeah. finally gets his first visitor, the, the good old loyal Podrick Payne. <laughs> Which, uh, Podrick bought wine, but, uh, that got taken from him. But, uh, <laughs> but then he, he got some duck sausage, uh, some ink, some paper, like all this other stuff. Uh, he was able to sneak through past the guards, but the wine, that was the number one thing that he couldn't bring into the cell. Yes, yes, indeed. But uh, again, like Tyrion, unfortunately, is not in a position to be able to enjoy his luxuries. He has to take what he can get, and he first immediately asks Pod to go and find Jamie for him. The other thing also being that um, that Pod reveals also is that he was offered a knighthood to testify against Tyrion, and that he turned it down. And it's, it's, it's so admirable that like there's actually like one decent person still in Westeros, you know, considering the fact that he's loyal to Tyrion, the other only decent person in Westeros, and Tyrion immediately realizes the potential of what could happen. He thanks Pod for his time and dismisses him from his service and tells him to get out of King's Landing for his own oh, safety, yeah. which well, is because, quite you know, necessary. The fact is, if they offered him a knighthood to testify against him, that means, you know, when he said no, uh, that means they want to get him out of the way, that they're going to do a, some sort of murder scheme to get Podrick out. And you know, Tyrion might be a little paranoid at this point, but he is in prison uh, about to face a death sentence for a crime he didn't commit. So the fact is, uh, Podrick, you know, is a target now that he refused to testify for Tyrion. Tyrion understands this and Tyrion, you know, says like, hey, uh, you're under direct order to save your life uh, because there's nothing I can do from it within here. Uh, you know, my hands are in the fate of my family. Uh, you know, so Podrick, you know, save yourself. Uh, and, and that's a direct order. So, you know, I think that's, um, you know, basically the two of them have this relationship uh, where they're looking out for each other. Uh, they understand the, the chessboard, so to speak. And the fact is Podrick has nothing left that he can do to help Tyrion. Uh, so the only thing that Podrick should do is look out for himself and make sure that he saves his own life. Absolutely. Yeah. Things are indeed heating up in King's Landing, but that's not the only place that things are happening. We're going to make two quick stop offs before we get to the other major sources of action. So that first one being on Dragonstone. Stannis, so Stannis, <laughs> unlike last yeah. season, Stannis is getting pretty like a lot of decent screen time for the first half of the season, you know, kind of establishing where he's going to go next. And oh man, Davos, yeah, Davos' Stannis, decision to let, let Gendry go last season is not exactly boding well for Stannis. Yeah, Stannis is, uh, he's like, hey, you're a literary man now. 
read this Davos and, and basically straight up like pointing a middle finger to him and again yeah. you gotta be thinking that it's like wow so I burned these two stupid leeches now not one but two of my enemies are dead without me having laid a finger on them you know so Stannis and, and, and now you know Davos consider the fact that Davos you know let go like the source of that sacrifice like Stannis is just living right now yeah so Stannis is you know basically I told you so you know, yep. that the magic is real. And Davos has, you know, basically, he can't refute it. And he says so. It's like, I can't refute it. The magic is real. But you can't rely on the magic, right? We, we need to actually look at the logistics, figure things out. We're, we're going to need men and money to solve this problem and take over the kingship. Uh, we should talk to Bravos. You know, we should, whatever. Uh, Stannis brings up the thing. It's like, we don't have men or houses that uh, can bring men to our cause. Uh, we don't have money. We don't really have the things that we need uh, to be able to fight this war. And Davos, you, you're my, you know, hand of the king here. You better figure it out. You know, how do we do this? Um, and you know, that conversation doesn't really go well between the two of them. Um, and Davos is, you know, left, uh, you know, to his own devices. He goes and, and visits. Uh, was it Shireen? Uh, Shireen. And, um, you know, basically they have a reading lesson that they're going to do. And Shireen has picked this book about uh, the one of the first knights of Bravos or, or whatnot, first swords, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and essentially they start reading it and, uh, you know, Davos starts telling a story about the difference between a smuggler, um, you know, and a pirate. And, you know, the fact is, if you're a famous smuggler, you're not doing it right. And, you know, he launches into this whole deep story about like how he told someone this, you know, a rich lord and they couldn't understand the difference. They almost killed him because, you know, pirates and smugglers are the same thing to, you know, people that are affluent. And he, you know, starts thinking about why this is so. And it's because, um, you know, they they really don't. Um, you know, they have a lot of money to the point where the the nuance uh, is, is lost on them. Uh, they don't understand it because it's it's so small that they couldn't possibly, um, you know, care to uh, figure out the differences between it. And this sparks an idea that's not really uh, pays off in this episode. Um, you know, essentially, you know, it's going to pay off uh, as we go through the season. Uh, but the fact is, uh, he gets Shireen to write him a letter uh that he's going to send presumably to the um you know golden bank um iron bank of bravos yeah the iron bank and he's he's essentially going to play uh a trick of his own uh to get some support for stannis and his war effort yes indeed it, 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 and i love the part the part two where he has shireen do it where he's where he's like look you're <laughs> yeah. you're a better writer in order to kind of tie it off he's like look you're a better writer than me i'm gonna stumble over the letters and it's gonna take forever and he tells her exactly what to write it's like i i just i love that little pair that little duo yeah you know i think i think do with them yeah i think the uh chemistry between um the two actors uh you know throughout the series really does work uh i think every everybody's cast well davos is is clearly um you know, one of the best characters of the show, you know, from start to finish from the, when they first introduce him all the way to the end of this show. Um, you know, he just has that realism, you know, okay, this is what you want to do. Well, I'm telling you, these are the logistics and no matter what the scenario is like, it's like, I understand that, you know, Melisandre has magic, but magic alone doesn't win wars. You know, that's can only be used in a certain 
manner. So he's able to compartmentalize, um, you know, a lot of these crazy things that are happening in this world. And he's able to uh, rethink, replan and relaunch whatever, uh, you know, whatever journey they're going to go on um, to a certain success. You know, he's very adaptable. And that's uh, what I think we like in his character. Um, And I think the fact is that Shireen uh, having to write the letter for him, she even says like, you're not Stannis. Like, why am I, why am I addressing this as if I'm Stannis? Uh, And it's because he wants to catch attention, you know, and his name carries a lot of weight. And I, I think, you know, this scene, you know, speaking about great writing, um, there's a lot of care in this scene, and I think it really does uh, set the Stannis storyline uh, on a good page going forward in this season. Absolutely. And speaking of another sequence in which we get a brief stop off with a character with characters that just continue to emphasize. I'll say kind of the survivalist aspect of this world, right? We have another stop off with Arya and the Hound in the Riverlands. It's the famous scene where they're arguing. They find that farmer that, you know, what's it called? You know, the later of which we see the payoff for in season seven, I think actually really well. So done where yeah, how they eat that soup is so disgusting, man. Oh, it's like nasty. The hound, but, but that's how like, you can tell they haven't, excuse had, they me. haven't had food. For, they haven't had food for weeks. That's yeah, how you it's, can tell. it's great visual storytelling because like at the beginning of the sequence, um, Arya is going around picking radishes and like kind of, uh, you know, pensively uh, eating them, right? You know, it's kind of like radishes, like, you know, whatever, but she needs to eat something. Um, and then when they get to that soup, like, uh, it's, it's kind of like a Marx Brothers, uh, routine, like comedy right. routine, like kind of screwball comedy, where it's like the father and the daughter are like, well, we got to pray first. We got to do this. And it's like, oh my God, all I want <laughs> is that soup. Yeah. You know, and so at but one it point. Pays off- amazingly well later on though yeah. obviously once we see the result of it where the hound where Arya walks outside in the morning the hound is knocked at the farmer and he's robbed him of literally all of his gold and she's like and she's like why and he's like this is a game of survival that guy's not gonna make it and it's kind of a harsh reality check but once again kind of continuing in Arya's story just the constant the, the consistent role models that are constantly saying do not fall for emotion do not feel anything you know, prioritize survival above all else because that's what this game is. And I think it's, it's yeah, well, I, I he's not wrong because, you know, the farmer says, hey, I'll hire you uh, to stick around and help me with the farm and also protect us against, you know, these raiders. And that's really what the hound's talking about is like this guy has been beaten up and paying the raiders um, that have come into his, you know, home, his farm and taken things. And that's where it's like he can't even protect himself. So the fact is, you know, the hound could stay there and he could, you know, effectively help him. Uh, But what's the motivation? It's likely that the hound, depending on how many raiders there actually are, could get killed, you know, defending this farm for, you know, what? Some some soup and, uh, you know, potentially some silver, whereas he could just take that silver and move on his merry way bring Arya to, you know, um, basically her aunt and sell her and have gold and silver and be able to, as he says in this sequence, uh, basically, uh, you know, uh, stake his passage to Essos, um, you know, to become a sellsword and live that lifestyle where he could fight for money and, you know, maintain uh, a certain lifestyle that he's accustomed to. Uh, as a knight in King's Landing. 
Right, and unfortunately, that does not happen here as the Hound right now is only primarily concerned with just kind of the next stage of their journey and kind of, you know, stepping over every innocent bystander. But now we head to the North Castle Black. Big, very important episode as far as kind of setting up the stakes both of the future of Castle Black in this season and this show. We have the first scene with, um, with you know, in the field with Ollie. Um, you know, little Ollie who we're introduced to that ends up playing a pretty significant part in the next couple seasons. His village is attacked by the wildlings with the fans. Egret, we even <laughs> see the shot specifically where Egret's arrow pierces his dad's neck. And like, I love the snap zoom there. Where it's like, hey, keep this in mind for later on. I think this is, again, another good scene because it's really like, good scene. It's a really sees, good episode. He sees the violence happen to his parents. And then basically this guy comes over looking like a witch doctor, you know, like, <laughs> like very, like the cannibals, right. They, they yeah. sort of look like this, uh, very scary, like, you know, um, you know, tribal, uh, group and, you know, the shaved heads the way and everything. That he just like so viciously sits next to him and says, I'm going to eat your mother and your father run yeah. along to the crows. It's like, it's scary stuff. Yeah. Like I listen, the cannibals, um, are scarier than the White Walkers at this point. Oh, for uh, real! In, in the show, so like it's, like it's almost like the White Walkers saw them coming and were like, "Oh, we're ta- oh we're sitting this one out." Do you, you yeah, have this? Listen, I, I really, uh, you know, it's a kind of a missed opportunity because the cannibals don't really last uh, too much as an enemy uh, in the show. They they you know could have done something where they kind of kept uh, coming back and harassing um, Jon Snow and, and whatnot. But uh, you know, the fact is, it's the the group is really well done. And the fact is this, it makes the scene, you know, um, very easy to remember like where Ollie comes from because, um, you know, not only did his parents get killed, but you had a man who taunted him and said, I'm going to eat both of them. And, you know, if you think about it, that's for a child, that's going to be traumatizing. Very traumatizing. Um, you know, probably as traumatizing as watching Ned Stark lose his head. Um, you know, so like Arya, and Sansa are traumatized for life by that. And they're going to want revenge against uh, the Lannisters, no matter what. You know, Lannister's evil. That's it. There, there's no convincing them otherwise. Uh, it's kind of absolute evil uh, in their eyes. And I think that's the same thing with Ali. Um, you know, maybe uh, Egrid's, you know, killing of uh, the parents, uh, maybe that could have been justified as like a raid. You know, that kind of happens in wartime. This is a little bit of war. Uh, but to have a creepy guy tell you that he's going to now devour uh, your parents' dead bodies, um, you know, that's absolute evil. And Egret is actually tied to that in Ollie's mind because he she's the one that initiated the death of her parents or his exactly. parents. It, exactly. It's a great setup for what happens later on in the season because, again, as, as we all know, Egret di- unfortunately dies at the end of the season. And in the books, it's just a random arrow. But the fact that we, like, get some characterization around that as well as, like, kind of how that ends up kind of inflicting more damage on John and what that says. I actually think, that, like, from a story standpoint, the Ollie character is actually handled really well. Just the fact that he's really oh, yeah. is more of a plot device than an actual character. But even still, exactly. like, the background is all there. And Like, what, like we don't want him to do what he does. But right. Story wise it makes sense um it makes it's a lot of really sense. It, 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 it's one of the most tragic love stories uh you know in television because right. it plays out over several seasons and you know it's it's uh hey everything looked great um but exactly what egrid told john uh it doesn't matter like you know their relationship is the only thing that matters and the two of them you know decide to pick their sides over the relationship and you know, that's pretty much what leads 
uh, to them never being able to be together, uh, you know, because death separates them. And, you know, it's, it's because, you know, literally they couldn't come together um, and just focus on themselves. They had to think about the bigger picture. Yeah, exactly. And as if, as, as if like, you know, Sir Alistair's hatred for John wasn't enough. Like it finally does boil up in this episode where it's revealed that, uh, what's where it's revealed, you know, Ollie heads straight to Castle Black, gives them a direct warning saying, look, this is happening. And this finally gives Sir Alistair like the ammunition they need. It's like, okay, this is coming. We need to prepare for war here. And, it also coincides with Sam, who says that, who, you know, is obviously worried about Gilly with the amount of, you know, men that are very desperate since they've kind of been all ordered to not leave the castle now, you know, until the fighting begins, since they're in an active war state. Sam obviously worries for Gilly and kind of ushers her away to Mulltown. She's not okay with this because, um, what's it called? Because, you know, did she? he swore that he would never leave her. And even though he's trying to do this for her own safety, she doesn't get that because she tells thinks that like the safest place is by him but i think she was better off in castle black like yeah um damn it's it's like he takes her to mole town and it's like yeah she'll cook she'll clean she'll take care of the other children um you know it's like pretty much only thing she gets in return is room and board and it's so basically she becomes like uh the slave at the innkeepers um, and everyone keeps referencing like there's other work, right? You know, which is, um, you know, uh, prostitution, right? That's a big sort of business in this right. world. And it's like, nope, no other business. We're not going to handle that. He's basically just trusting some random innkeeper uh, to allow her to do any, any and every chore as long as it's just chores. Um, you know, and it's, it's kind of a weird spot to leave her in uh, considering – you know, it's like, do you really know who's in Moletown? Um, at least you kind of understand the situation at Castle Black. Um, you know, it's it's a bunch of, I guess, I guess it comes down to, you know, who they are, right? These are thieves. These are rapists and murderers, etc. So Castle Black is almost like being in a prison um, where people are allowed to roam around freely. Um, but what is Moletown? You know, Molestown is sort of this, you know, Just, it's uh, like this ramshackle town that's kind of only there to like service the night's watch. Yeah, it's on the border. It's like, de- you know, probably uh, destitute families like crimes probably uh, there. You know, it's it's not exactly like a shining light of, uh, you know, uh, justice to, to <laughs> go back to uh, uh, that scene with Tom and, and, and Tywin. But uh, the fact is, um, you know what makes her safer there than at castle black? Uh, because you know, there the, the sort of members of the night watch can sneak out of castle black. That's a reference that's been made the whole entire show. Uh, and they can go to Molestown, and you know, that they have less repercussions if they get away with something in Molestown than if they do something at castle black. Uh, so, you know, I think it's, it's Sam being a little misguided, not really thinking things through like his intention is there. He really wants to protect her and he floats this idea. Um, you know, Hey, listen, like I think it will be safer there uh, considering the upcoming war. Uh, but I don't think he's thinking through all the factors. And I, I think, um, you know, unfortunately the situation, no matter where she is, uh, is not going to be uh, really any safer one way or the other, in my opinion. Right. 
Right, exactly, exactly. And it's followed by, again, the, the Capra scene for this entire storyline. Two people who we haven't seen, quite frankly. It's, it's funny because when I thought about it, when I watched this episode originally, I realized, oh, wow, these characters haven't been around for this many seasons. They've been missing for almost an entire season since their last appearance was the fourth episode of last season, you know, at Craster's Keep. But they've officially been let go or been able to escape. It's never really specified. Gren and Ed are back. You know, Dolores and Ed, they arrive back at the wall. And uh, they inform them of what's going on at Crasher's Keep. The, the mutineers uh, that killed all the all the other loyal Knights Watch members have now officially shored up there. They're living it up at Crasher's Keep, and that they're not planning on going anywhere. They've kind of made that their new home, their new kingdom per se. And John realizes that's a problem because he, if you also remember from last season, he lied to Mance Raider's face about how many brothers they had at Castle Black. And Mance, at least for the most well part, over a thousand, right? Well over a thousand, <laughs> well over ten thousand, something ridiculous like that. Yeah. And John realizes, wow, these mutineers will be the key to Mance realizing that they don't have that that many numbers, and it'll just make cause Mance to attack them like even further. So they realize that this is that, that unfortunately, for better or for worse, the mutineers again in an original storyline that did not happen in the books. And again, I will give them credit: the original storylines they had this season in order to supplement the material, really well done for the most part, because like they said. These mutineers could unfortunately be the key to their undoing, and so they need to make a move on them and kill them. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Like, I didn't read the books, but you know, the fact that you're telling me that a lot of this material um, did not take place in there uh, just shows you, you know, uh, their understanding of the world and the characters that they have in play. And the fact is, they can craft storylines. Uh, they can cast really good actors to come in and play the parts, and like. It's, the, I think the Craster's Keep storyline, um, you know, is one of my favorites because it really helps define the North and like, you know, just how hard it is to be at, uh, you know, uh, Castle Black. And there was a reason for them to mutiny in the first place and kill the Lord Commander. And, it, um, you know, it, it just really characterizes everything and fleshes things out and, uh, gives you a sense to really care for what happens up there. Ab absolutely, yeah, and it's it's a really compelling setup for kind of the midpoints of of the season when they go on that quest to Crasser's Keep, and I, I think it's actually like, surprisingly enough, like an actual like compelling like wrap up of that storyline, which is a storyline that is still completely left untied, really, in the books. You know, we never really check back in with those guys. For all we know, they're still there. You know. But that leads us into our last storyline of the episode. And again, the title of the episode comes from Red Breaker of Chains. It's where Daenerys officially earns another nickname to add to her litany of nicknames, I swear. By the time we get to those last two seasons of the show, she's got more nicknames than Apollo Creed of all people. They arrive <laughs> outside the gates of Meereen. They officially, you know, the Miranese have heard about her conquests of Astapor and Yunkai. They're ready for her. They send out, it's a Miranese tradition. They send out a single rider. You know, they do single combat before they officially go to war. You know, Daenerys looks down her line of like, who will represent me? You know, Jorah, Barristan, Grey Worm. And she finds reasons that all of them should not go out there because she needs them and values them and values their advice too much. And Dario offers himself up. You know, it kind of, I'd like to think of season four you know, as being one part Daenerys officially solidifying her conquest and the other half, you know, Daenerys, Dario, you know, rom-com. Yeah, but <laughs> That's kind of how it, I categorize it. So Lord uh, Barristan, right? Barristan, um, yes, Barristan. Yeah, so <laughs> he makes the best argument of them all. Listen, uh, no one in the world has won as many single comments as I have. True. <laughs> you know, like, like he sets himself up to be a confident, amazing man. And she's like, yeah, but I need some protection. So, yeah. no. 
You know, and, but it's like this is the guy. Like, if he's going to make a message, right? You know, he needs to step up and do the it. The craziest like, part is, again, even more so, bringing it back to the books. It's not even Barristan in the books either. It's not even Dario in the books either. It's another character that they just completely chose to cut out, which is a character that was Sir Barristan's uh, bodyguard when he first met with Daenerys because he was masquerading as somebody else for a long time. It was actually a, mir- a former Miranese slave fighter named uh, Strong Belwas, who again is a character that does not exist in the books at all in yeah, the show yeah. at all well books have the pages to uh you know build up some cool yes. death scenes for characters uh film and television unfortunately uh you know hey if you introduce a character you're kind of stuck with them right. so merging them together um you know and consolidating storylines uh you know does definitely help with movies and television but what I will say, um, regardless of the choice, right, you know, and who goes and, and does it, uh, you know, Dario has this great plan. He's just going to stand there. <laughs> He's just going to stare the guy to death, right? <laughs> you know, it's uh, the guy's charging on a horse, you know, full spear, ready to go. And Dario just stands there. And then he starts making out with his dagger, like, you know. <laughs> Uh, and and blinking towards uh, hey man, you know, I'm hearing uh, a lot of shade towards something that completely works. Yeah, That's all I'm d- saying. And then he's blinking towards uh, you know Daenerys, like you know, he and showed then, it off, man. Yeah, um, and, and then you know, obviously, it's revealed what he was thinking. Uh, he just like flips the dagger right into the eye of the horse. It collapses. The guy falls and tumbles right in front of him. The dust clears. And all of a sudden, his sword is coming down and slices the guy wide open. He's dead. Everyone in the city of Marine is shocked. Um, and then he basically, um, you know, there's no good way for me to put this, but he he returns the favor and, and whips out his own piece and, you know, does uh, piss on the ground as, you know, the previous uh, challenger did. Um, basically mocking the message Marine was sending uh, to Daenerys. And so, you know, there's a little bit of, you know, uh, tradesmanship going back and forth between the rulers uh, during this scenario. Um, and I think it's, you know, definitely a clever scene, um, you know, a, a little little uh, graphic, you know, uh, or uh, explicit, I guess. Um, but the fact is, it's... Um, it just leads to the fact that you know it's it's an, an inevitable situation, right? The the two sides are not going to bend to each other, um, and the two sides are, are proud, witty, and uh, you know they know how to handle themselves. And you know at this point, uh, Daenerys to get the upper hand uh, basically brings Ends in the ultimate message moment. Yeah, she she brings in these catapults um, to basically start barrading the city. Uh, But, you know, instead of just like loading it up with stones, she loads it up with barrels and she's catapulting uh, the broken chains of all the other slaves that she's freed into the city of Marine. Right. Um, And we're left with a very powerful image of a slave picking up the shattered chain uh, and really contemplating. should I rise up? And one of the masters or, you know, whatever uh, rulers is behind him. Uh, and he's really concerned. 
Yeah, and it's it one. Cuts it's the credits. It's the ultimate signifier of what's to come. This was another action-packed, jam-packed episodes. There were scenes happening all over the place, really showing kind of where the story for this season is going to go. And it nailed it. And it ends on probably one of the best notes that you could get. As far as like comparing like the action-packed episodes of the last couple of seasons, I honestly, it's between this and and it's between this. And then episode three of last season, uh, what's it, it's between this and sorry, and episode three of season two, what is dead may never die between like the two like action packed, jam packed third episodes of a season. But that was it. That was our review slash recap of season four, episode three, Breaker of Chains. We'll be back next week for episode four, Oathkeeper. Pat, pleasure to have you as always, man. Where can the good people follow you? Hey, listen, you can uh, come find me here on Talking TV. I'm Talking Thrones with Tom. And like I say, I, 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 every week I keep saying, you know, look at my Instagram at Patrick W. Huber. I'll one day post on it. I swear. Uh, I was actually uh, listening to this webinar today about uh, NFTs. And I was thinking about, um, you know, what happens when Instagram, you post to it? Could they uh, claim ownership of, of your images? Because uh, of the terms of service and everything. So uh, I'm curious about this uh, new technology um, and how Instagram works. Um, you know, but Hey, maybe I'll post one day, uh, get over my paranoia of posting. Hopefully uh, it'll in, happen. In ownership of images, you know, um, hopefully but, it'll happen sometime soon. Yeah. But the fact is, um, that's where you can find me. And, uh, yeah. You can, of course, follow me at Movie Nerd Reviews on Facebook and Instagram at Official Talking TV Podcast on Facebook and Instagram for the official Talking TV stuff. We update that every single day with all the things we have going on. Be sure to check out David and Chris's excellent review and recap of the first three episodes of Peacemaker, as well as our review of episode four of the book of Boba Fett. We've got all of that going through the rest of January into the beginning of February, all just to signify all of the new stuff that we have going for you guys coming for the new year. And as always, remember. 12 seasons in a short film and watch more fucking movies and TV. Yeah, See you guys break, next week. Break more chains. Talking Thrones. <laughs> <laughs>